This is episode 13 of the V Podcast. The V Podcast is brought to you by CovalentLeadership.com, where we help you become the best leader you can be through giving you the tools you need to develop your leadership skills. Thank you for listening and enjoy episode 13 of the V Podcast. Welcome to the V Podcast, where two men are trying to stamp out bad leadership in America, one podcast at a time. And if you're ready to become a 21st century leader, then the V Podcast is for you. On the V Podcast, we discuss the leadership problems in today's workplace and outline solutions to make you a better leader. Thank you for listening and enjoy the episode. Now, here's your host. Welcome to the V Podcast. I'm Jeff. And I'm Dr. Joe Fleischman. And we are Covalent Leadership, here to stamp out bad leadership one podcast at a time. Now, today's discussion is going to be pretty fun, and it's all about games. Don't, don't you think that'll be fun, Joe? It, it should be. I'm hoping if we do our job right. If we do our job right, that is for sure. Now, one of the things that we always like to invite our listeners to do is to visit our, our uh, website, covalentleadership.com. And check out some of the resources we have for you there to help you identify bad leadership in your organization. We also help you identify some of the things that you can do to help prepare yourself to be a great leader. In fact, to be a covalent leader, which is something that only 2% of leaders out there strive to be. Joe, I know you're in sunny Arizona, but I don't want to talk about springtime in Arizona right now. What I want to talk about is springtime in the NFL. What does oh, that mean? Yeah. Yeah. You know what? You know what's coming up, Jeff? Well, I know for you Green Bay Packer owners, it's a big day coming up, isn't it? It's the NFL draft. Yes. And this is what makes our franchise great, that we are great drafters. <laughs> you are great. You are great drafters. Now, the thing I love about the NFL draft is is it's a lot like, well, it's it's you remember the movie Moneyball with Brad Pitt? I do. And how Brad love that I love that movie. And how Brad was starting to use the the statistics to to pick his baseball team and look for those hidden gems that everybody else was overgoing. And I love that scene where there's where he's sitting around the table with all of his scouts and they're saying, "Well, what about this guy? Well, we don't want to draft. We don't want to take him because he's got an ugly girlfriend." <laughs> so I have I have to ask you as a as an NFL owner, is that how you guys conduct your draft based on the quality of their girlfriends? I'm I'm sorry, Jeff, but I can't let some of these trade secrets go uh, because there are 31 other teams who want to be as good as we are. So I have to I kind of have to be careful here. I can't I really can't share too much. That's part of the game, Jeff. But I, I saw an interesting article out there today. As a matter of fact, uh, it was it was on Sports Illustrated, and the number one question at the top of the page is: It really worth taking a quarterback in the first round? And I got to laugh about that because. My answer to that question is, if they're the right quarterback, well, absolutely, you know, but, but anyone who's truly good at what they do, could you imagine today having a shot at uh, Ed Tuttle Jones or Deacon Smith? How about if Dick Butkus were to enter? If there was somebody out there in the college ranks today that was, that was exactly like Dick Butkus, would that be a good investment in round one? That would be a good investment, but statistics tell you that there's there's better values out there that produce as well. Let me ask you this though, don't statistics tell you that taking people in the lower rounds turns out to be better for the franchise in the long run as opposed to high 
high-priced first-round draft picks? Well, you know, it's it, it's an odd saying. There's so many studies out there, Jeff. Some say that the the lower to mid rounds uh, produce better long-term results because of the expectations on those one and two first and second round uh, choices. I I tend to believe that part. I think the mid rounds are probably more appropriate because they there are less hyped expectations. Everyone wants a running back coming out of college to be that next Barry Sanders. And, you know, the reality is there was only one Barry Sanders. There's only one Walter Payton. There's there's only one Emmett Smith. There are a lot of running backs. So, you know, we put – that's a part of the games, I guess, process. We, we want everyone to be that Larry Fitzgerald, and we forget they're an anomaly. You know, they are an anomaly. So that's what I can say. I – I, you know, I marveled at Al Davis. Al had was an interesting man, and I, I think a lot of people who follow the NFL would, would agree with that statement. He was an interesting guy, but Al knew how the game was played. Right, and I remember when Janikowski came out of Florida State. What what was decades ago? Because what's he been playing in the NFL now? Sixteen, seventeen years. Long time. The Polish cannon out of Florida State, who would draft a kicker in the first round? A kicker. And yet today, Janikowski is the leading scorer for the Oakland Raiders. Al knew what he was doing. He understood how to play the game. And I think I think anyone is a great draft choice if they're the right one. That is true. And when you talk about playing games, I can't help but reflect on the news that I hear almost every day that uh, Congress is pretty good at playing games. They, they've got some very sophisticated rules up there. And most of the senators, most of us understand those rules. And the rest of the world doesn't. But that is all a part of the game. But you know what? As, as good as Congress is in, in their gamesmanship, I would hazard a guess that are, and uh, I think many of our listeners would agree, some of the greatest games players in the world are our kids. They are because you know what, Dad? Mom said we could do this, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> That's where it's at. Yep. That's where it's at. Yep. <clears throat> and I'll tell you what, as parents, you better be on the ball because the kids are making up the rules as they go. <laughs> and there is no rule book. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's talk about the definition of gamesmanship, Joe. What I, I understand it's a noun. What else is it that defines gamesmanship? Okay, we're going to turn to our old friend Webster again, and we're going to see that gamesmanship is the use of methods, especially in a sports contest, that are dubious or seemingly improper, but not strictly illegal. I like that. Dubious or seemingly improper, but not illegal. Jeff, remind me to come back to Pop Warner, will you? Okay. The technique or practice of manipulating people or events as to gain an advantage or outwit one's opponent or competitors. That's pretty complicated. So let's go back to methods that are dubious or seemingly improper, but not strictly illegal. And you know who excelled in this, Jeff? Um, the, the list is really long, so tell me. <laughs> Pop oh, the, Warner. The, the football Pop guy. Pop Warner. <laughs> you thought I lost, I lost that thought, you know? But here's, 
Here's the thing about Pop Warner. If you um, there's an incredibly good podcast out there on Radio Lab about Pop Warner, and and he actually started his coaching career at an Indian school, as and he coached uh, uh, Native American Indians, and he would take them and he got this school to play Harvard, Princeton, and this Indian school was was horrible. I mean, they just had nobody, but Pop Warner, he reinvented the rules and he, he specialized in looking at the rules and then interpreting rules that did not exist. And then he would implement these new techniques of playing. And then a year later, they would change the rules so that he couldn't do that. And let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. The forward pass was a relatively new invention in college football at that time. And people didn't know how it worked. So, well, they didn't know how to exploit it effectively. So Pop Warner, his players, his Indian players were very fast, but they were very small compared to the teams, the white teams that he was playing. And he said, if I go straight up against these big white college players, they'll kill us. So what he did is he said, okay, every time we throw the ball, we're going to only throw it to the outside. Up until that point, because the players were so large, they used to do these little shovel passes. You know, they'd run through the middle, uh, crossing patterns in the middle, and they'd get this five foot six, five foot seven receiver, six foot receiver, and and they would just stand in the middle and dominate and and pull it out of the air. Well, his players couldn't do that because they were too small. So he said, "I can't do that." So he put them out on the ends. So immediately he starts throwing the ball to the ends, which was an innovation. Right. It was an innovation. And the coaches hated it because that's not how the forward pass works. You don't throw the forward pass to the sides. Anyway, his players started going on the field and when they would get bumped, they would get dominated. So he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you when the play starts, I want you to step out of bounds and then I want you to run down the football sideline as fast as you can and then. Go back into the field of play, and then we'll throw the ball to you once you're in the field of play. And there was no law or rule against it. So for the first year, his players were sprinting up and down the sidelines off the field of play. No one was touching them, and they would <laughs> jump back on the field. The ball would come to them, and they'd run in for a touchdown. And because they were smaller, they were faster than the opposing team. And Pop Warner and his Indian schools were pounding the Ivy Leagues. So they wrote a rule that said specifically, you cannot leave the field of play. That <laughs> and that's funny. what Pop did. That's awesome. He just constantly, yeah, he looked at the rules and he constantly said, what does it, what does it tell me that I can't do? What rules am I implementing that don't exist, um, that are made up, and how can, I, how, can I, how can I bend them? So I love that. He just took the idea, if it doesn't say I can't, then it means I can there you go. I love oh. that. Living in the gray area. <laughs> but but covalent leaders don't live in the gray area. They live in black and white. They try to be very transparent in everything they do because, as we've talked about, failed leaders build games. Covalent leaders build strong organizations. A leader has, has to ask themselves, what do I want to be? Do I want to be a leader that builds games or do I want to build organizations? All right. So, Joe, one of the things that helps build strong organizations is, an, is a leader that has an agenda that's public and can be articulated by everyone. 
So let me ask you this. What do you think are the elements that make up a strong agenda that everyone can articulate? Well, a strong public and transparent agenda um, tells everyone in the organization, internally and externally, where they're going. It tells all stakeholders. It tells anyone who's watching or anyone who's interested um, where they're going, when they're going, how they're going to get there, why, and why is very important. Uh, that uh, the, the why is the motivator. The why is the spark that gets an individual going. The why of change is publicly articulated. Who, what, when, where, why, and, and how. It, it, it tells the general public and everyone else who's looking where that company's going and what the future is going to look like. So the key is to make sure that everyone understands what's going on and what's, what's going to happen. Correct. Would you say that that is true? Did I summarize what you said? That's it. Everyone has to understand. I want you to share with our listeners the example of gamesmanship that you shared with me the other day about how Louisiana companies play the game about job creation. Right. And I, I guess that's why we talked about jobs a little bit ago. Um, in Louisiana, in the petrochemical area, there's a lot of companies that move into the state. And every time a company comes into the state, of course, they want financial incentives to be there. And I think that's a, a pretty common thing in business and industry today is, is businesses looking for some investment on the part of the state to make it easier for them to locate. Uh, you're familiar with that. You did some economic development work, Jeff. You're familiar with that concept. Oh, yeah. Everybody has their hand out. That's right. So typically what happens is a company trying to move into a state who's looking for some economic stimulus says, these are the performers. We will create uh, 5,000 new jobs. So the state looks at it and goes, you know what? This is a pretty good investment. We'll give them $10 million, whether that's in tax breaks or infrastructure or cash. We'll give them $10 million and we will create over the next two years, 5,000 new jobs for the state. Now, Jeff, what's a job? I would say a job is a new position within a company because, because you have a workload that 10 people can't do anymore. So you got to hire five more to do the job. Right. So I think, you know, in, in general, the public looks at it and goes, holy smokes, this is the region of the state. The state's investing $10 million. We're going to get 5,000 new jobs. So what business does in the What's very common in the petrochemical sector throughout Louisiana is to say, okay, we got your money and we're going to start this building project. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to hire 500 heavy equipment operators and they're going to be dump truck and they're going to be bulldozers and they're going to be backhoes. And we're going to bring in 500 of those people and we're going to use them for four months while we move dirt. And I report to the state that I hired 500 people. And then at the end of that dirt moving experience. I let them all go. And now I bring in a thousand people to pour cement and put the footing in. Those are new jobs. And I use those footing people, uh, five, let's say 500 of them. I pour cement and I do rebar and I, and I, I prepare the ground. And then a month later, when I'm done preparing the ground for cement, what do I do with those 500 people? They're gone. But how many jobs have I created now? I'm up to a thousand. So now I start the pouring in the construction side. So I bring in another 500 people and I pour cement and I do that for the next two months. And then when two months is done, I, I do what with those 500 people? See ya. That's right. And, but, but now I bring in the construction people. Well, you're up over a thousand now. So, 
So I'm bringing in my steel workers and I'm bringing in my welders and I'm, I'm putting the structure together and I build for the next six months and I bring in another 500. But when that construction's done, what do I do? That would be pink slip day. We're done with you. Next group, please. That's right. So what happens is I create all these short term jobs and and I don't just bring in 500, I bring in 1,000, I bring in 2,000. Because at the end of the day, what I want to tell the state is, I promise you, state, that for $10 million, I would, I would make 5,000 jobs. But you know what I did? I created 10,000 jobs. That makes me twice as good, twice the investment you thought I was going to be. And that's what I did with your $10 million. But when I go now to look at that company and I say, great, they created 10,000 new jobs. I want to go look at these people. When I show up at the door to see the people, how many are there? Uh, maybe about 500. Yeah. Right. Because they, they do put some staff in and that's good. Uh, that's always good. But the idea that they're going to have 5,000 permanent jobs, not hardly. In the numbers game, I doubled my performance. I was twice as good as I said I would be. And that makes me even a better partner. So that's, that's how that game is played. And I always appreciated that, you know, when we have a skilled workforce and you have individuals who are really good at what they do, often the problem is that they want to be paid for that skill. It works in the NFL. If you're a really good wide receiver, what do you expect? You want the big payday. That's right. You want the Larry Fitzgerald type payday. If you're if you're a really good running back, you want the Eddie Lacy type pay. And um, the thing that I appreciate about the NFL is that those agents take their their players to the market and they shop them on the market. And what usually happens to the best players? They get big bucks. They get big bucks. And the game in corporate America isn't like that, especially in the construction sector and petrochemical. And I'll, I'll never forget the day I was working with a very large company. Their HR department came to us and said, hey, we want, we're going to hire all these people. But here's the challenge. We want skilled craftsmen. We want them skilled at NCCER level four. That's what we want. We want the highest level craftsmen we can get. But we have to manage their expectations. We have to manage their financial expectations. What were they saying, Jeff? We don't want to pay for your skill. We're cheap. And we don't want these individuals thinking that they're going to make top dollar, $37, $38 an hour because they have level four and and every person with that level across the board makes $37.50 an hour. We don't want them thinking we're going to pay $37.50 an hour. So we have to manage their expectations to let them know we're only paying $12.50 an hour. That's funny. That's a good game right there. Now, that is dubious. That is. It's a good word for it. I think of when our, our leaders are playing games, the turnaround game is one that I admire. I had a gentleman come into my office. He was 53 years old. He'd been a welder for 30 years. He was still an entry-level welder. After 30 years, he worked 12, 14 hours a day, six and seven days a week, and he never was allowed to grow. And the reason he never was allowed to grow is because in the turnaround game, they bring in employees, craftsmen at the lowest level. You've got four levels of NCCR and more in some instances, but they bring them in at the lowest level and they pay them that entry level rate. And then what they do is they work those individuals for six or eight weeks, seven days a week, 
80 to 90 hours a week. And then at the end of that time period, they're working on one tower or they're working on two towers, that turnaround, whatever it is that they're fixing. Then they lay that employee off. And then three days later, they bring them back as a new employee. And if they're a new employee, what does that mean? Base pay. Base pay. Because you have no longevity, you're a new hire. So you can work for this company for 10 years, always being a new hire because you're getting fired every eight weeks. That is dubious and seemingly improper, but not strictly illegal. And because that individual never has longevity in the company, the company never trains them. They never develop them. They never allow them to grow. They keep them at the absolute lowest rate of pay they can while charging the company the premium price. That's a brutal game. That's a racket is what that is. It's gamesmanship. You know, because a lot of the hospitality does the same thing. If you go to large hotels, I see a lot of it in Laughlin, Nevada, where the casinos come in and they go, we need 90 people. So what we'll do is we'll, we'll bring in 90 individuals from Czechoslovakia or Hungary or Mexico or Bolivia. We'll bring in 90 people for up to 90 days and we'll house them. And essentially what we'll tell them is that, you know, this is kind of think of it as a dress rehearsal. We're giving you real world experience in the, in the hospitality industry. And if things work out, maybe there could be a job there. Maybe it's possible. So these individuals all rush in thinking to themselves, if I work really hard, what's going to happen? I could stay a long time, long term. Yeah, I could stay a long time. This could be the ticket to a better life. So what they do is they bring in all these employees. They house them in the facility for 90 days because they are on a unique work program. They don't have to pay them the standard rate because they're housing them. They get to write off the housing costs. Then they work these individuals for 90 days in a wide variety of shifts. And at the end of 90 days, they pick them up, they send them all back home, and then they get another batch that they get to pay at a substandard wage, write off all the expenses of doing it because there's training and everything else that's involved. Then they just repeat that process. And that's a marvelous game that they play to get what they need. It seems dubious, looks improper, but it's not illegal. Well, let me ask you this, because those are two pretty good examples of how corporations manipulate the system to do some things. But what about the more subtle game of the office politics and how bosses use gamesmanship in the office politics to manipulate the employees to get them to do what they want or need? Well, you really see that when you come to the evaluation time, don't you? Yes, you do. I think what happens is evaluations for most people have nothing to do with evaluating their performance and everything to do with the office politics of the organization. I would agree. I always laugh. No, I, I don't. I, uh, I cry, I should say. With companies and people from around the country, and I hear things like this when employee evaluations start. We're going to follow the curve. And only 1% of your people are allowed to be exceptional. And 1% of your people, whatever that curve is, only so many people are allowed to be exceptional. You must have X amount of failures and everyone else must be in the middle somewhere. But when your employee evaluations are over within your organization, your people must follow the normal curve. Your evaluations must follow the normal curve. Have you ever heard of that, Jeff, anywhere else? Oh, numerous organizations are that way. And I always just shake my head and go, what are you thinking? Right. 
because you're going out of the way and you're hiring the best people you can in the world and then come evaluation time, you have to follow the normal curve. So everyone starts to line up to play that game. How do I get to be on the extreme right? How do I avoid being on the extreme left? Because it has nothing to do with performance. Mm-mm. You must follow that curve. It's, it's brutal. It's absolutely brutal and it's ineffective. And what ends up happening when you play games during the evaluation period is you marginalize the tremendous work that your, your people are doing and you teach them your performance doesn't matter. And what impact does that have on an organization in the long run? Well, then you get people that are disengaged at work because they think what I do doesn't matter and you get apathy and your your whole organization slows down. You do not become a high performing organization. And that's what happens when you introduce the malignancy of gamesmanship into your organization. Its tentacles go out and it just suffocates the individuals whom you're not playing nicely with. So how does a covalent leader overcome that malignancy or how do they avoid that malignancy of gamesmanship? What is it that that they can do? Communicate, communicate, and communicate. That's it. (laughs) You know, it's not lost on me, Jeff, that when we walk into a business and we ask them, what's the problem? What's the number one problem? There's a failure to communicate from both the top down and the bottom up. Leaders who unfortunately use the tool of gamesmanship, they fear communicating because they don't want anyone knowing what they're doing. They lack the skills to communicate because they've never done it. And even what's worse is they are often embarrassed when they communicate because that means that if they're telling people what they're doing and what they're thinking, then they have to field questions about that. And if they're not able to answer questions, then they're going to look stupid. It's going, to, it's going to challenge their authority. So they don't want to put themselves in that position. So the best gamesmen in the world stop communicating. Because if you don't know what the rules are, then you can't play. Exactly. And that is what leads to failed leadership. Because how do you hit a moving target all the time? You don't. Yeah, just when you think you understand how to play the game, like in your story about uh, Pop Warner, now all of a sudden they're doing something different that technically is within the rules, but is outside of what fair play would be. And so you, you just cannot be successful in a situation like that. No, but you can be successful if you communicate, communicate, and communicate. And I don't just mean repeat yourself. That's what, that's, you know, um, I used to have a math teacher who did that. And the math instructor would sit in the class and he would look at me and would say, Joe, I don't understand. I can do any math calculation in the world. I'm so good at doing calculations and I show my students how to do it. You know, I'm going to show them how to solve the quadratic equation. I'm going to show them how to solve for standard deviation using the formula. And then they don't get it. And he said, why don't you come on in and take a look. Tell me what the heck's going on. And I said, I'd be more than glad to. So I walk in his classroom that day and he has this large algebraic equation on the board. And he says, guys, this is what we're going to do today. And he solves this equation. It probably takes him 10, 15 minutes to solve that equation. And the student students, he's had like 15, 20 students in his class. He says, any questions? And about six or seven hands go up. And he said, and the first question was, okay, I, I didn't get that answer. I don't understand what we did, you know, back in step four. And he goes, okay, well, let me show you again. So he erases the problem and he starts at the problem and he says, let me show you this again. 
and he solves the equation just like he did the first time. But he, instead of using 15 minutes to solve it like he did the first time, this is a review now. So he solves it in about eight. And he, and he looks at them and he says, any questions? And a hand goes up. I didn't get that answer. I didn't understand what we did in section. So he takes this and he says, let me show you again. And he races the board and he solves the problem. He turns his back to the students and he works through the problem as fast as he's thinking. Blam, bam, bam. And he's working through this problem and he's working through the problem. And he pops out two boards later with equations. He pops out about six minutes later with the answer. Having never looked at a student, his back turned the whole time. He has now solved the equation three separate times. Turns to the students and he says, there, see how that works? And you know what the students said? I have a question. Yeah. I didn't, I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand. He's like, what, what don't you understand? I've shown you three times and class ended and he waited for me. And when the last student walked out the door, he said, do you see what I'm talking about? They're so stupid. <laughs> and I said, it's really not them. <laughs> it's really not them because showing someone the same thing three times is not going to solve the problem. What you've got to understand is if they're not, if they don't understand, you don't turn their back on them and then do what you've done before. You know, if you, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always had. Insanity. That, that was his problem. That's right. That was his problem. I said, you as the instructor are going to have to learn multiple instructional methodologies so that you can answer their question about not getting it and then sharing that concept in a different way which you didn't do. That, that seems to point to one of the big problems in corporate America today is the whole micromanager problem because you don't want to communicate. It's just easier to sit down and do it for them or stand over their shoulder and push the buttons for them instead of letting them go and explore and maybe bringing them to the chalkboard and letting them start through it and then helping them when they get stuck. Right. Because if you're the guy who's micromanaging and you're always pushing the buttons, what does that make you? How, 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 how invaluable does that make you? The thing that struck me was it takes courage to be willing to put yourself out there and be willing and ready to answer those questions of, you know, here's my idea, but I'm not quite sure how we're going to do it. To admit you don't know or to admit that you maybe don't have all the answers, that takes a lot of courage. And that's why people play the game because they don't have that courage. They don't, but, but they play a game because they understand those rules. And since they don't tell anyone else what those rules are, they can always win at that game. And that's, that's a good one. And that's, in fact, that's kind of a good spot to wrap up for this week because next week we're going to talk about manipulation, which is kind of a, a nice follow through to gamesmanship because you're trying to manipulate the outcome of whatever's going on by using dubious methodology. Right. And uh, not only isn't it an exciting topic, manipulation, but it happens to be our last podcast for this season. That's incredible. Who'd have thought we'd have made it through all 12? Yeah. 12, 13 salient podcasts. And I use that term loosely, but I, that would be a baker's dozen, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully there's no holes in our methodology and our thinking, but uh, I feel pretty good about where we're at because I think we have really identified a lot of the malignancies that are out there that are killing the leadership in America today. So very good. 
Before we sign off, again, we want to invite everybody to visit our website, covalentleadership.com. You can see all 12 of our podcasts there. And you know the other place you can find our podcast, Joe? Uh, I do, but our listeners don't. Do you want to share with everybody where they can find our podcast outside of our website? Yes. In addition to iTunes, you can find us, uh, the V on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. So there's just any way you can find us. That's wonderful news. We are cross-platform. We work on Android phones. We work on Apple phones. We are cool. Right. And the cool thing that I want to stress is when you go listen to our podcast, please leave us a rating. That helps us. That helps us know that we're talking about the right stuff. And it also helps us figure out what direction we want to travel for upcoming episodes. So take a minute, listen to one of the episodes Leave us some feedback so we can get better. Yeah, I can't wait to hear. If, if you would like for us to cover a specific topic, make sure you, you, you leave a note with us, and uh, Jeff and I will do our best to address it. Sounds good. Well, Joe, before we sign out for today, do you have any final thoughts for the covalent leaders out there? I do. I want everyone who's listening to remember that leadership is more than a game. Leadership is highly personal, and they should never apologize for having the courage and wisdom to set the game aside and make it so. That was pretty good. I like that, Joe. Nice way to wrap in today's topic to your usual, usual witty exit speech. I like that. Thank you. Well, until next time, I'm Jeff. I'm Joe. And we are Covalent Leadership, and this has been the V Podcast. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.